Hello, everyone, and welcome to NCEA Podcast. This is Kevin Baxter, the Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA. We are blessed to have John Schoenig with us. Uh, John doesn't need an introduction for many of our Catholic school educators across the country, but he is the Senior Director of Teacher Formation and Education Policy for the University of Notre Dame's uh, Alliance for Catholic Education, the ACE program. And uh, it is, uh, it's great to have John with us. John also, uh, for the purposes of this podcast, was nice enough to do a session for us for our Catholic Leadership Summit. Um, so those of you who attended CLS can find his session on day one uh, and view that. Uh, we're gonna be talking about much of that today, but first, welcome, John. Thanks, Kevin, it's good to hear your voice. Um, great to be with you, thanks very much for having me. So John, one of the things I know that you've been passionate about the, the last number of years is, is school choice um, across the country. And uh, I thought we might just start off uh, with the general trends that you're seeing or general thoughts the last uh, few years in terms of uh, school choice. Yeah, so um, I guess, uh, you know, um, it depends on what we mean by the last few years. If I, if I back up further than what I think you're probably asking me about, but I, I hope that this is helpful. Um, I, I first started to get, uh, interested in this personally and professionally, probably right around like, well, actually 2002, when there was a very famous Supreme court case, um, uh, us Supreme court case called Zelman versus Simmons Harris. That was the first time that the court really took up in earnest, the question of whether or not a state could provide publicly funded tuition support that parents could use to attend non-public schools, including uh, religious schools. It was looking at the Ohio program. Now, um, up until Zelman, there, there were a few programs. Um, the, the first uh, this uh, choice program enacted was in 1990 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Subsequently, uh, Ohio passed one that was serving children in Cleveland. Uh, there was a program in Arizona and Florida, but, it, but for the most part, it was kind of, it was slow growth. And that stands to reason because for many states, the question was, is this even permissible? Does the First Amendment even allow this? Um, Zellman changed that um, because the court ruled in a 5-4 decision that properly constructed or appropriately constructed, the Establishment Clause does not, um, does not prohibit publicly funded private school choice. So from 2002, um, really for quite some period afterwards, you, you might say uh, up until uh, quite recently, choice was really on the move. Um, now, um, I, I really started to get involved in this back in like 2004, five, and um, for, the, for a good like 10 years after that, there was, I don't know that I, if I would call it explosive growth, but it was quite remarkable. I mean, um, the, the number of states enacting programs and just the number of programs enacted overall, it was like, you know, at least a state or two uh, was being added to the list of states with, with school choice programs for a good clip, for a good period of time there. So number of programs is expanding, the number of kids enrolled um, in, in private schools, in particular in Catholic schools, was growing for quite some time. The the pace slowed um, in the last couple of years, and I think that's that's due to a, a whole bunch of, of reasons. But I don't think that the kind of um, the slowdown in terms of the number of programs passed or the number of new states is cause for alarm. 
the growth of those programs themselves has continued, like enrollment growth has continued. And I think that in some ways, the, the construction of them, the, the design of them has improved quite a bit. My suspicion is, and I, 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 my guess is that we'll talk about this a little bit later. My suspicion is that the next few years are, is going to be another one of those big growth phases. So like if things went kind of quiet for a couple of years, I imagine the next couple of years, uh, there's going to be another big growth phase. So that's what, that, that's the trend that I'm seeing right now in raw numbers. You know, there are like 26 states plus the District of Columbia, um, more than 50 programs, um, over a half a million kids um, enrolled in one of these choice programs, depending on how you define them. Different groups are defined differently. I, I'll say it's 26 states plus D.C., um, you know, a little over 50 programs and, uh, you know, over a half a million kids. Um, that's great. And we want to get into that uh, future. I, I do want to go, Selman uh, Simmons-Harris had a, had a three-question test, right? Or three, uh, three questions basically to pose in terms of secular purpose and all those types of things. Um, and are those all still relevant today in terms of, um, I guess, even the growth you saw after that decision? Um, those seem to be driving a lot of the conversation. And, and this, I have a purpose to this because I want to go back to the Espinosa decision and some of the questions that were asked in that, in that case. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I won't, I don't want to get too like, um, like nerdy legal. Stuff. We can get nerdy, John. That's all right. <laughs> um, Zellman was a very interesting decision because it was unclear what kind of test or doctrine the court was going to use to examine that, uh, that Cleveland voucher program. The the best um, the best prediction would have been that it, they were going to use something that looked like or was exactly a test from a previous case, a case in the 1970s, uh, a test called the Lemon Test. And the Lemon Test was used to examine just most um, most enterprises in which a state was providing aid to a religious institution. And Lemon had these three prongs. Does the program have a secular purpose, a valid secular purpose? The second prong, they would say, um, is the primary effect, the effect prong, is the primary, primary effect to aid or inhibit religion, because it, it can't be to aid or inhibit religion. And then the final was, um, does the program lead to excessive entanglement between church and state, between government and religion, because it can't lead to, to such excessive entanglement. So some people thought what they'll do is they'll they'll examine the the Cleveland voucher program using the lemon test. But over, you know, in the years in between lemon, that lemon decision in the seventies and, and uh, uh, Zellman versus Simmons Harris, which is decided in 2002, some of the court's doctrine and approach to, and I should say some quite a bit of the court's approach to establishment clause questions had changed enough that people they'll probably look at this um, through, if not fresh eyes, like kind of refreshed eyes, or th th that they will be, um, it won't exactly be lemon. What came out of Zellman was um, something that looked kind of like Lemon, but also had some other elements to it. It's something called the private choice test. So there are some elements to the private choice test that are like straight out of Zellman, or sorry, straight out of Lemon. But then there are other questions that the court asks when, they, when they're thinking about voucher programs. So they'll ask things like, um, is a broad class of beneficiaries included right so like is the program designed to 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 serve more than just children of one specific religion um another another question that the that the court asks is um 
are there um, non-religious options available to a child? So the program can't lead to a situation in which the only option that a child has is to go to a religious school. For all intents and purposes, and I, I, I'm wondering where this is your where you're headed, uh, Kevin. I guess this is a good uh, example for the listeners that you and I did not uh, plan this out, or at least if we did, I wasn't paying attention. Um, the, the 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 bar that Zellman set for voucher programs is not a very high bar to meet. The reality is that the establishment clause in the U.S. Constitution is not the primary constitutional barrier to enacting choice programs. It's actually state constitutions that are the primary legal barrier. There are formidable political barriers beyond those legal barriers that we can talk about as well. But as regards like just straight up constitutional barriers, it's not really the US Constitution's Establishment Clause. It, it, it's, it's the state constitutions. I'll stop there. Great. And that's a perfect segue into Espinosa, because I think we do want to talk about Blaine Amendments, which is what you're alluding to. Um, and and great to clarify that federal law uh, in terms of the Establishment Clause and even in terms of some of those earlier Supreme Court decisions um, aren't barriers to enacting um, choice legislation in the states, that the barriers tend to come uh, in individual states. So if you can, John, um, summarize a little bit uh, what happened with Espinosa v. Montana, uh, which uh, is a Supreme Court case that was decided over the summer. And uh, if you will, just maybe a little bit uh, about the Blaine Amendments. Um, I know these are complex topics, but uh, as much as you can summarize. Sure. So um, I'll try to do this um, at a kind of general enough level that I don't get myself into any trouble here. So um, Montana enacted uh, a publicly funded private school choice program, not a voucher um, per se, what's called a tax credit scholarship program, the mechanics of which I don't think really matter for our conversation. I'm happy to get into it if, if you want. But they enacted this, this choice program. And, and uh, soon after the enactment of the program, Montana's Department of Revenue said that the, the program could not ultimately serve children attending religious schools. And the reason that the program couldn't serve such children is because of a provision in the Montana Constitution. Now, the, this provision in the Montana Constitution is similar to provisions in 37 state constitutions. These provisions are often referred to as Blaine Amendments, uh, named after the senator that, who largely pushed for their um, their inclusion in state constitutions. Some people call them no aid provisions. Now, no two Blaine Amendments are exactly alike. The language is different, and the 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 manner in which the respective state supreme state courts have interpreted them is different, for sure. Um, but in general, the the principle that these these amendments, these 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 uh, provisions in state constitutions stand for, is that, that they prohibit the legislature and in some cases other state actors from state appropriations to religious institutions. Okay. Now, some of the Blaine Amendments, the, the language is very, like, it's very simple and straightforward. So if you look at Indiana's, it's very brief. Uh, Montana's is a, is a bit lengthier. And then if you look at, like, say, for example, Michigan's, Michigan's is, is quite involved. Michigan's is one of the two strongest of all the Blaine Amendments. So what happened in Espinosa was 
again, the uh, the Department of Revenue says you, that, that that Montana can that, that this this program, this this school choice program, can't it can't ultimately benefit children who are attending religious schools because that would violate the Montana uh, Blaine Amendment. So this raises a question about whether this raised a question, I should say, about whether the Blaine Amendment itself violated a provision of the U.S. Constitution, because, of course, uh, given the supremacy clause, the U.S. Constitution always has to reign supreme. So no provision in a state constitution or state law can, you know, contradict, can violate the U.S. Constitution. So what the court was examining in Espinoza was whether this whole experience uh, with, with this choice program in Espinoza, whether that violated the free exercise clause of of the U.S. Constitution. So I should be careful there. It's not as if the court was saying that the Blaine Amendment, Montana's Blaine Amendment, in and of itself is impermissible. But what they were looking at was whether that use of the Blaine Amendment to invalidate the program in Montana violated the, 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 the free exercise clause um, of the, the U.S. Constitution. Now, what they ultimately determined was that, yes, it did. It, it did violate the free exercise clause. Um, now, this is a very, very important decision for a whole bunch of reasons, um, not the least of which is this, and then I'll be quiet because uh, I want to make sure I'm, I'm actually answering your questions. I apologize that I'm not. The, the, the question of both the, like, the kind of the, the purpose and the thrust of these Blaine Amendments hasn't ever really been taken up in earnest by the U.S. Supreme Court, or I should say like explicitly with a view towards school choice programs. I mean, if you think about it, the first voucher program was enacted in 1990. So I guess kind of relatively speaking, school choice is kind of new. And for Supreme Court purposes, it's not as if the court has taken a lot of bites at that apple to figure out like what, what the Constitution allows and doesn't allow. This was the first time that the court really was taking a hard look at what these Blaine Amendments in state constitutions can do to school choice in states. And in brief, essentially what they say is, th th this is my, my reading of this, although I've, I've spoken to a number of people and, and I shouldn't say it's mine, it's one that I've heard other people articulate that I agree with. Here is essentially the conclusion that the court came to. They said is, no state has to enact a school choice program. Nobody has to do that. But once they do, they cannot exclude a class of beneficiaries solely on the basis of that class of beneficiaries' religion, their religious status. So once you decide to open up state support, say for low-income families to attend the school of their choice, you can't say you can go to any school so long as it isn't religious because that violates the free exercise clause. And that is a very, very, very important statement for all sorts of reasons for Catholic school families. Um, so I'll stop there. That, that's why I think um, Espinosa is one of those cases where I think in the short term, um, the, the kind of 
the, the, the statement the court is making is powerful because it represents something that the Catholic school community has been fighting for and has stood behind going back to the days of like Dagger John Hughes, uh, Archbishop Hughes in New York in the latter half of the 19th century. It's important for that reason, like right now in and of the moment. Moving forward, I think it could represent some really great opportunities for Catholic school families. Um, John, do you have any idea, I'm putting on the spot with this, but how many states, we know the school of choice, but how many states would fund um, some alternative to their public schools, um, excluding religious schools today? Are there, are, there, are there more states that would have provisions, for example, either for special education or for low income or for something that would allow for families to opt for an alternative to the traditional public school system while barring um, that religious attendance. Do you know if there's a there are some that are out there that fit that definition? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. So there are two states that have school choice programs. So when I say school choice programs, again, I mean there's state funding available that is essentially for tuition support that kids can use at non the non-public school of their choice. There are two states that I did not include in my earlier categorization of the, 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 the 26 states. There are two states that have choice-like programs, but that exclude religious schools, that, that say you can use this funding to attend a non-public school, but you may not use it at a religious school. And those two states are Maine and Vermont. Those programs are actually the oldest choice programs in the country, depending on how you define it. They, they, they go back uh, to the quite early years of the, the Republic. It's, you know, um, it, it's quite likely. I mean, it's going, it's inevitable. I should say that both of those programs are going to get invalidated in their current form because of the Espinosa decision. So, um, that's great. Uh, so I'm going to try to frame this in um, maybe, maybe two chunks here. I want to think about how we move forward with this. One, I want to um, quote Justice Breyer um, from the oral arguments in Espinosa. Um, and in, in, that, in those oral arguments, he made this point, and this is a quote. Say in San Francisco or Boston or take any city or state, and they give many, many, many millions of dollars to the public school system. And a lot of them give a lot of money to charter schools. Now they don't give money to Catholic schools, all right? Now, if we decide that your complainants, that you're right, does that all change? And then the other attorney kind of went around a little bit and then he continued after, uh, after some other exchange. My hypothetical was they give it out in, it's called the public school system of the United States. I'm saying that's what I'm talking about. Now, what's your response? What's the difference between this case, Espinosa, you win, and the same with public schools. They have to give it to parochial schools too. What's the difference? Now, they didn't answer that in the oral arguments. They kind of hemmed and hawed. Um, but really what Breyer wanted to know is that um, giving money to the public system, which is secular under the Establishment Clause, um, will it, under Espinosa, trigger a state duty to proportionally fund private religious schools? Uh, this is obviously something very hypothetical, but I'm just curious about your thinking on that and in terms of one of the steps maybe that, that we can be thinking about school choice in, in the coming years. 
Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Uh, this conversation with John Schoening has been so engaged, so engaging, that we are uh, we're going to divide it up into two. So you've just heard part one of our conversation on Catholic school choice in Espinosa versus Montana. Um, and uh, we are going to release part two next week. So hope you enjoyed part one, uh, and it's left you uh, interested and excited about hearing part two. So uh, that's it for now. Thanks for joining us for NCA Podcast. It's Kevin Baxter, Chief Innovation Officer, and we'll see you next time. God bless. God bless.